Praise God. Isn't it amazing to hear the testimonies of what God's doing in Tanzania? Now, I know you guys are getting nervous because you're looking at the time and you're like, hey, man, the pastor's just getting up there right now. Listen, I'm not going to talk too long. I think this morning was more important that you heard the stories of what's taking place in Tanzania because uh, when we're looking together at the book of Acts, and really it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but I think it's more importantly, you could say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And I want you to know today, the Holy Spirit is still working through his church, amen? The gospel's still going forth. There are unreached people groups still today, but there's one less now because of the work that God is doing through Kevin and Santa. And so continue to keep them in your prayers. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we are uh, following through the book of Acts, talking about the, the beginning of the church. Right now, in, we're in the, a period where we're talking about the third missionary uh, uh, journey of uh, Paul the Apostle. And uh, last week, we saw that he was in Athens, right? He goes to Athens. He goes to really the epicenter uh, of the culture of that time. And he was able to speak on Mars Hill, which was really kind of the TED Talk of the day, okay? Because he was bringing something that was new. And, and so from there, he's going to go, and he's going to go to the city of Corinth. We have a map here, and I, I don't know if you guys love maps as much as I do. I love maps. I love to track where things are going. And so you can really kind of see his, uh, the, the missionary journey here of Paul. He goes from Athens, and from there you can see all the way to the left. It's an area known as Uchaya which we would say now is today of modern Greece. But from in Uchaya, he goes from Athens over to Corinth. And so um, he leaves Athens, he heads towards Corinth, and uh, he heads out to what is known as the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It's a fun thing to say, right? Say that five times fast, Peloponnesian Peninsula, right? Um, if, if you're traveling by land out to Corinth, that's the way that you get there. And so there's another map here. We're going to that second map. I want you to see kind of this area a little bit more clearly. Um, there is an isthmus right there. That's another fun word. The isthmus of Corinth. And so it's a, this body of land that you would cross, if you, again, if you're coming out to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And so just think about all the traffic that would come through this area. There was this huge east to west trade route that ran through this region. At the same time, if ships were coming up from the south, and so you can see it there to the far side, the Saronic Gulf, uh, there was two ways that they could get into the port city of Corinth. They could either travel around the Peloponnesian Peninsula over 200 miles in some very difficult seas, or they could come on land there and go about three and a half miles. Now, which would you choose? I'm getting, taking three and a half miles, right? And so they would often, they would come to that shore and they would bring goods across. And there's actually uh, a road that is there uh, that would actually, it's called the Diokos, that was actually a paved trackway that they believed that they would take the ships out of the water and put them on wheels, and there was a number of slaves that were there in Corinth that would take and they would pull those ships over to the other side and put them back in the water, all right? Um, all that to just avoid this dangerous journey. And so why is that important? It's important that we understand the amount of trade that was going through this region. This was the trade capital of that time, east to west, north to south. All of this was going through uh, the city of Corinth. Now, if you hear about that, pulling a boat out of water, right, and putting it on wheels and rolling it, you say, well, why wouldn't you just build a canal, right? That just makes the most sense, three and a half miles. Well, uh, in reality, that was, that was the desire. It was actually Julius Caesar that came up with this plan. He said, we should build a canal. And then it was uh, Caesar Nero, who was this megalomaniac, who said, I can do that. And he started on it. 
but didn't get really very far. And so the, the real construction on the modern Corinth Canal, which is about four miles long, it actually started in 1882 and it was completed by 1893. I think we have a, another picture here that kind of gives you a, an aerial view of that. You can see the canal. And now it's much easier if you're traveling by boat south into, uh, from the south into the city of Corinth. And so all this huge traffic coming through this area, I want you to understand, this is a growing city. This is a, a thriving city. Athens may have been the center for culture and philosophy, but this is really the trade capital of that region. And as Paul heads into Corinth, it's, it's much larger than Athens at this point. In fact, it's 20 times the population of Athens. It's difficult to estimate the, the actual population, but they say it was probably around 200,000 plus another 500,000 slaves that were all living in this small area. Now, Corinth had a reputation for a number of things. Some were good and some were not so good. They had a reputation for their bronze work. They were also known for their architecture. You probably heard of Corinthian architecture or Corinthian columns, all right? Corinth was known for sports. Uh, there was a set of games every year called the Ismanian Games that was second only to the Olympics that took place outside of Athens. However, one thing that Corinth was really known for, more than the brass, more than architecture, more than sports, it was this, it was immorality. If you wanted to describe someone in this time as being an immoral person, you would call them a Corinthian, all right? Sure, a Corinthian could mean you're from Corinth, but if you said, you know, Bob acts like a real Corinthian, that's like saying Bob has absolutely no morals and no values, right? And sorry, Bob, nothing personal. Um, if you were to call a woman a Corinthian, it would be like calling her a loose woman or a prostitute or, well, you get the point, right? And so in this city of Corinth, prostitution was so widespread that there was actually a slogan that was developed at this time that said not every fellow can afford a trip to Corinth of course referring to the prostitution that was everywhere and what made it worse was that it was actually religious prostitution let me explain above the city of Corinth there is a hill it's a very famous landmark called the Acropolis or the Acrocorinth and on top of that hill there was a temple you can still see the ruins of it today it is the temple of Aphrodite. She was known as the goddess of sexual love. It's where we get the word aphrodisiac from, right? And so this temple housed 1,000 priestesses that were actually temple prostitutes, and every night they would come from their temple and they would go down into the streets of Corinth and they would work their trade. That's how the temple got its revenue. Now, I'm giving you this background because it helps us to understand what Paul is facing as he goes into the city. But it can also help you understand the book of, of 1 Corinthians, right, when you read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a very familiar passage. Think about it with the context of Corinth in mind. Verse 9, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's really a reminder to the Christians in that context. God has set you apart, right? God has, has called you to live differently because, again, sexual immorality was so prevalent in this culture, and it was not just prostitution, also homosexuality. And so that's the city. But I, I want you to understand something, too, also about Paul's mental and physical state at this point. Because in every place that he stops... He's just getting wearier, and he's getting wearier. And by this time in his second missionary journey, he's becoming discouraged. Not just from the travel. It's likely that he was very sick at this point, dealing with health issues. He had seen a response to the gospel, but it's, it's not what he had hoped for. He had been chased out of five cities by angry mobs. He was mocked in Athens. And now 
he travels by himself to Corinth. Silas and Timothy never met up with him in Athens. And so Paul is exhausted. He's very likely discouraged. That's where we pick it up in, uh, in our text. If you come to chapter 18, verse 1, it says this. After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So he leaves the synagogue, goes right next door. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. May God bless the reading of his word today. Uh, So again, here's Paul. He's arriving from Athens to Corinth. He's experiencing probably a a low time in his life. He's fatigued. He just walked 53 miles. How many of you would be tired, tired after 53 miles, right? Um, he's alone. Timothy and Silas are still occupied in Berea. He's bivocational. He's making tents and trying to minister in the synagogue on Saturday. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he had this sense of failure coming from Athens because there wasn't too much of a response. And he was actually called a, a babbler there. He's called a bird brain. And I can't help but think that he must have been frustrated leaving a city that's full of idolatry. And now he's heading into a city that's full of immorality and prostitution. This is a real sin city of the time. And I got to say, as we look at the, the moral state of the world around us, it can be very easy to be overwhelmed, can it? It can be e- very easy to look at things and, and just be so overwhelmed because when we talk, talk about things today like sexual immorality, when we talk about things like fornication or homosexuality, these are no longer things that our culture condemns. Instead, they're so often celebrated. And so here's Paul, he's entering into a context much like ours today, and he's, he's very weary. Remember, at this point in the trip, he's been jailed in Philippi, he was persecuted in Thessalonica, Berea, he was ridiculed in Athens, and now he has to face Corinth. And at a low point in his ministry, I don't want to say he was about to quit, because I don't think Paul had any quit in him, right? But if ever there was a time that he was going to bail on what God called him to do, this would be the time but the Lord meets Paul in this time. And he shows him that trying times are not the time to quit trying. Trying times are not the time to quit trying. I think for us personally, sometimes we have those, those feelings of, man, I, I feel like I'm doing all I can and I, I'm not making any headway. And we want to say, man, I, I quit, right? I, I quit this job, I quit this church, I quit this family, whatever it is, right? There's, there's no use. The harder I try, the worse things seem to get. 
I don't even witness anymore because it feels like nobody listens. Uh, I feel like so much of what I do, I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm in the daily grind. Life is just mundane and repetitive. Anybody ever been there before, right? I know this is true for some reasons. I talk to many of you that are going through it, but I've also gone through it. And sometimes we as God's people just need a spiritual second wind. There's a lot I could dig into in this passage. I don't have the time, but I want to show you just four things here that are cures for discouragement that we can see in our own lives as well. Write these down. Our community groups are meeting this week talking about these things. Write down these four things. God gives Paul, number one, new friends. Secondly, he gives him new courage. Thirdly, he gives him a new awareness of his presence. And finally, he gives him a new vision. Knowing what Paul was about to face in Corinth, the Lord gives him new friends who share a belief in Jesus, but they also share his same vocation. Aquila and Priscilla were Hebrew Christians who, after being driven out of Rome, fled to Corinth. Now, nowhere in the text do we get the idea that Paul ministered to them and got them saved. No, they already knew who Jesus was. Now, you can ask, how in the world is that possible? Well, remember Acts chapter 2. I know we're going back a ways, right? When the Holy Spirit falls on the church and many heard the gospel preached in their own native tongue, right? And then they went out from there. And so the gospel message has spread. It's already reached Rome. It's already reached the Italians, right? And Paul hasn't been there yet. He hasn't preached there in Rome yet. Later on, he's going to go there and he's going to visit Rome. But at that point, a church was already established. And so think about how encouraging this is to Paul. Man, the gospel message is going forth. And so Aquila and Priscilla extend hospitality to Paul. They give him the opportunity to work with him. And so Paul has the opportunity to work with his hands, with friends who are believers, and just think about how this is an encouragement to him. And so look at the group of people that that surround Paul at this point. There's Silas, there's Timothy, there's Luke. Now he has Aquila and Priscilla who will travel with him. On on top of all that, there are all these new converts to Christ who are not going to let Paul down. The Lord is gathering his people as a support. And I truly believe the Lord will rarely solve the problem of discouragement in your life without using his people to remind you that you're loved by him through them. Honestly speaking, there is nothing that will deepen our fellowship more than when we can, can confess our needs and our frustrations to each other. Amen? And one of the greatest qualifications for ministry is the willingness not only to minister, but to be ministered to, right? Paul was at a place where he needed to be ministered to. Paul wasn't a lone ranger, and neither are you and I, amen? We need the body of Christ. We need the other believers to encourage us. I'm so thankful for men and women like that in my life that that stand with me, surround me. I can share frustrations. I can share discouragements, unless I get back to it, right? The Lord uses others to encourage us so often. Secondly, we see encouragement come to Paul by the appearance of the Lord in a vision. You think about that word encouragement, though. Think about that word. The word encourage means to put courage into someone. When we are discouraged, it means we've kind of lost courage so often, right? And and what God wants to do for Paul is put courage back in him. And, and, And what he says says a lot about Paul's condition. It's evident that he was afraid. He's tempted not to speak in the midst of conflict. Do you ever feel that way? Like, you know if you share, there's going to be conflict, and you say, ah, I'll just keep my mouth shut. And sadly, too many Christians are responding to our culture that way right now. They're saying, man, if I open my mouth about truth, there's going to be conflict, and so I'll just stay silent and keep the peace. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The great tragedy of the church today is not that we are censored, but that we are self-censored. 
right? We're worried that we might get a bad response, and so we say, I'll just say nothing at all. But I believe Paul was at a point where he just needed a fresh encounter with the Spirit of God. He needed an assurance that the church in Corinth was going to grow and going to survive. And so look at these words to Paul. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. I mean, Paul was a courageous man. There wasn't too much he was afraid of. I think his greatest fear at this time was that if the gospel continued to spread, if he continued to preach, it would mean more hostility. It would mean more persecution. Again, he's already been beaten. He's already been imprisoned. He's already been run out of cities, and on his heels are all these Judaizers, right? And there's really only one cure for that kind of fear, and it's love. Scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. I think Paul needed a renewal of that love relationship with the Lord. Only the love of God could deal with his fear. Because hear me today, write this down. Fear is always the absence of knowing we are loved. I think Paul needed a reminder that he was loved by God for who he was and not for what he was doing. Some of you need to hear that simple truth today. You're loved by God for who you are and not what you do. But this reminder for Paul would cause him to replace caution with courage. It would cause him to preach regardless of danger. But here's what else he needed. He needed, and we need, an awareness of God's presence in the midst of the problems. Jesus' promise here to Paul was the same promise given to the disciples in Matthew 28, 20. You see it? He says, I am with you. And with that assurance, nothing could really hurt Paul. I want you to see here, the Lord didn't promise freedom from attack. There was more of that to come. But he did promise this, that that nothing was going to hurt him. Now, what did the Lord mean by that? Because we know, again, Paul's going to have further physical harm done to him as he continues in the ministry. Here's the reality. Harm would be done to him, but it could not hurt him. He was safe for eternity. The difficulties that he would face would not take away the inner security that Paul had with the Lord. And, and I think it, it's at this point that, that, that Paul's just had enough and the Lord steps in to assure him, you'll never face more than you can bear. You see, they, they may, might have tried to kill the apostle Paul, but they couldn't do that until he said, I've finished my course and I've run my race. Right? We know they killed the Lord Jesus, but not before he said, it is finished. And for each and every one of us in this room, if we're serving the Lord and we know the Lord, God has a purpose for our lives. And it's, it's greater than our job, amen? It's greater than just the nine to five. And, and if you choose to, you can live it out fearlessly. There will be persecution. There will be trials and hardship. But until your work here is done, God's not finished with you and the devil can't take you out. Someday, God alone will call you home when the time is right. Reminded as I was thinking on this of a, of a cartoon comic by Calvin and Hobbes. He says this, God put me on the earth to accomplish a certain number of things. And right now I'm so far behind, I'll never die. Anybody feel that way? <laughs> I'm going to live forever, right? But it's so good to know that nothing can happen without the Lord's permission. And for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And my prayer is, God, take me when you're through with me, right? Until then, I'm going to serve you, right? And and when you're done with me, I don't want to stick around here any longer. Take me home, right? Can I just say, church, I I believe we're in a season where you just need to hear this. It's too soon to quit. It's too soon to, to call it quits. Ask the Holy Spirit for a second wind. 
I was reading this week of a missionary by the name of Frederick Noland, and he was serving in North Africa. It was in the midst of so much terrible persecution that Christians were actually running for their lives. And one night he was fleeing on foot, and he was trying to catch his breath as there were those that were coming after him. And he, he ducked into a small little cave, and he was waiting there and figured it's just a matter of time before they find me. But as he sat in that cave, he saw a small little spider weaving a a web across the mouth of the cave. And eventually, the entire mouth of the the cave was covered. And he was just fascinated watching this take place. And then he saw those that were chasing after him come to the cave. And they looked at it and they said, well, he couldn't be in there. There's a spider web over the front. And they left. And he escaped. And later on, he said this, where God is... A spider's web is as a stone wall. And where God is not, a stone wall is as a spider's web. Because here's the reality. Unless you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, you don't really have that protection in your life. And you certainly don't have it in eternity. What you think maybe is is a stone wall in your life that could never be broken down, I want to tell you today, it could very easily come down. But finally, the Lord gives Paul new vision for ministry. Verse 10, the Lord lets Paul know, I have many in this city who are my people. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close today? He says, I have many in this city who are my people. And you can read that and say, well, well, how could God say that? Because at this point, there's no more than a handful of Christians in Corinth. But this was a promise, I want you to understand, of God's potential. God did not see this perverse, wicked people of the city for what they were, but for what they were going to be. Again, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul writes to these same people years later. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's writing to, to Corinthian Christians, and he says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But don't miss what he says next, because this is so important. He says, such were some of you. (laughs) Later on, he he looks at this group of believers and, and what God has done amongst the Corinthians, and he says, man, when I came to you guys, you were a mess. Such were some of you, but here's the good news. But you were washed. He's speaking there of salvation. But you were sanctified. He's saying you were set apart in the midst of a a, a perverse culture to actually live differently. You were justified. You were given a right relationship with God and covered in his righteousness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Church, I know it's easy to be overwhelmed by the world around us. But I want to challenge you to see in others the potential God sees. I want to challenge you to see them the way that God sees them in the future. I believe God would say to us as a church, I have many in this city who are my people. They just don't know it yet. And so we should walk and and we should live and we should walk through the mall saying, I wonder if that's one of those. We should sit down at lunch today and our waiter comes to the table. I wonder if God might intervene in his life or her life. And then you say, God, what would you have me to do to bring that to pass? Maybe to 
continue to step into the work that God has for you, you you need a second wind today. I want to encourage you today. So did Paul. So did Paul. But hear me today. Trying times are not the time to quit trying. If you need a refreshing, if you need that strength, I want to challenge you. Look at the people that God has placed around you. Look at those that God has placed around you, friends and believers, to, to come and encourage you. Maybe you need to pursue those relationships more. Or maybe you need to ask them, God, give me some, some new friends, right? And, and pursue those relationships. Look at the provision of those around you and be honest with others in the body about your struggles. If you're feeling discouraged today, ask the Lord to encourage you. Ask him to put new courage into you by his Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord to give you just a new sense of his presence in your life. And hear me today, don't be afraid. Trust his protection. You're here until God is finished with you. And finally, I would say today, ask the Lord for new vision. Ask the Lord for new vision to to see God's potential in the lives of others because that's going to move you towards your purpose to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe this week God's going to use you to plant a seed. Maybe he's going to use you to to water a seed that's already been planted or maybe you're going to see a harvest. But I hope you would hear the Holy Spirit even say right now, I have many in the city who are my people. As we close, if you need that second wind, if you, you need a fresh touch today, just lift your hands to the Lord. Just lift your hands to the Lord and ask him for that. Ask him for, for new friends, for new courage, for a new sense of his presence, and for a new vision for the lost.